Good morning, Green Tree. My name is Joe Brehab. I'm one of the members here at Green Tree, and I have something very important to share with you this morning. So gather the family, gather the kids, the pets, give everybody a Capri Sun, and let's jump right in. But first, uh, let me just pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we ask that you would give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see, and then an all things, but especially in this message. Please let your truth be known, uh, despite any shortcomings in the, the way it's, your word is presented or um, we present you. I just pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so when I was a kid, which seems like a very long time ago to my children. Uh, so long ago that when I talk about it, I think they sort of imagine Civil War tintypes, um, black and white photos, the lack of things like Nikes and ketchup um, before they remember the world even beginning. I had a teacher uh, teach me the parable of David and Goliath. And that was the first parable that I was ever taught. And so when she taught me, I guess, I guess back then we would have called her the school marm. When she taught that parable, she would always explain to me and to the rest of the class that we were to be the hero, that we were to kill the giant, that we were to defeat evil, that we were to be like David. That was our job. That was what we were to learn from that story. And what uh, I'm so looking forward to is that uh, Miss Tammy, is gonna take a minute and she's gonna walk us through that story. So for me, that'll be like a walk down memory lane, but have your kids listen in. And I would encourage the parents to as well as she um, tells us that story one more time. Good morning, Green Tree families. Tammy Higgins here. I'm gonna tell you a quick version of a story from the Old Testament, David and Goliath. Now, David was a small shepherd boy that God had chosen to be the future king of his Israelite people, the people he had chosen. Now the Israelites were fighting with this other group of people called the Philistines. But the problem was the Philistines had a giant on their side. I mean, over nine feet tall giant. He was so big and he was so mean and he had really heavy armor to protect his body and he had really big heavy weapons for fighting. And every day he would come out morning and night and he would tease the Israelites and he would say, hey Israelites, why don't you send me your biggest, strongest fighter to come battle with me? And if I win, you get to be my slaves. And if you win, we'll be your slaves. And he would do this every day for over a month. Now, the current king, Saul, hadn't really been trusting God, hadn't really been obeying and they were all scared. He was scared, his army was scared, all the Israelites were scared. Now, this whole time, David wasn't there. He was still taking care of his father's sheep, but his older brothers were there and they were scared. And their dad, Jesse said, hey David, why don't you take this food up to your brothers and then you can kind of tell me how they're doing. So he packed up his things including his slingshot that he used to keep with him out in the fields to protect the sheep from the, the predator animals that would come around. And he went up to where the Israelites were on one hill and the Philistines were on the other hill. When he got there, he couldn't believe what he saw. His older brothers that were supposed to be so big and brave and strong 
were scared and all of the others were scared and the king was scared. And he thought, guys, you have God on your side. Why are you afraid of these Philistines? And they said, if you're so brave, why don't you go fight him? And he said, sure. So they tried to get him to put on the armor, the big heavy armor, but it didn't fit because he was so small. And he decided, you know what? I'm not gonna wear that. I have God on my side. I'm just gonna take this sling and I'm gonna go fight the Israelites. And he did. He went out and he challenged Goliath. When Goliath, this big giant, saw David coming, he laughed at him. Everybody laughed. They thought, who is this kid? And who are these Israelites sending a boy to come fight me, a giant? Well, you know what? When Goliath started to charge at David, David calmly picked up his stones. He swung it around in his slingshot and he threw it at Goliath. And it hit Goliath right on his forehead, right between his eyes. And do you know what happened to that giant? He fell over and David won that battle. And he was the hero for the day. Can you believe it? Now, if I were telling this story in Sunday school, I would have you guys act it out for me. And I would pick different people to play the different parts of the story, okay? So some of you might wanna be Goliath because he's this big, strong, you know, intimidating and scary guy and you might wanna be that guy. Some of you might want to be King Saul and get to be the boss and tell everybody what to do. Um, others of you might want to be the hero of the story, David, and you get to like defeat the big bully and be the big hero of the day and have everyone love you. The thing is, when it's a story in the Bible, the hero isn't really David. The hero is God. And if you were playing a part, if I were playing a part that was most like me, we'd be the Israelites, kind of scared and hiding and afraid of the giant because they're scary and they're overwhelming. And we start to think about, you know, what we have to offer and we're not that strong. How could we possibly defeat the giant? But David trusted God. He had God's power on his side. That's who defeated the Goliath. That's who defeated the giant. It was God, he's the hero. He's always the hero and he loves to come rescue us. Wow. Thank you, Tammy. Um, I guess it turns out everything that I learned when I was a kid was a lie. Uh, but I am going to work through that, and it may change some of the things I have to say today. I would love, though, to use something that Tammy brought up in her um, lesson, and that is when she talked about how we have to know who we are in the story. Uh, I don't think it's possible to really understand the parables and the stories in the Bible unless we know who we're supposed to be in each one of them so we interpret it correctly. A great example of that is when David was much older than what Tammy talked about, that he had a confrontation with the prophet Nathan who told him a story about an, an older wealthy man and a uh, poor man who only had one lamb that was stolen from him by the older man who was richer. And David, the key to the parable for David was to understand who in the story he was. If he misunderstood who he was, then the entire parable would have been of no use. Uh, but he was made to understand by Nathan exactly who he was, and it led to a life change for David. So that's a great example to me of how important it is that we understand who we are 
in the parables, particularly the parables of Jesus. And what I'd like to do today is to ask that question that Tammy asked, who, who are you in the parable? And I'd like to ask it about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is the parable that's really at the center of this series that Tom has been taking us through for the last three weeks and, and Steve Hughes as well and Corb. Um, now, um, Tom already went through the actual parable two weeks ago. If you were paying attention, you know this. Uh, but in my uh, mind, I think that I, the disciples themselves probably heard this parable over a hundred times and they heard it right from Jesus. And in spite of that fact, they still really struggled to understand that as well as other things he said. So we could probably do with a second run through it, but I really do want to hit it from a very different direction. So I think it will be worthwhile. Um, most people already know the parable pretty well, but I want to read it through just to make sure we're all on the same page. So I'm going to do that now, uh, reading from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and you'll see those on your screen. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and with all, uh, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, meaning the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to the place where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now here Jesus continues, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. The lawyer said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, will you go and do likewise? So first thing, if we want to correctly understand this parable, I think we need to understand the question that's actually being answered. Now, the immediate question is, who is my neighbor? And that's what Tom covered two weeks ago. But there's a larger question that drove that question. And that larger question is, how do I inherit eternal life? And the way we might ask that today, the way I hear it all the time is, how do I get saved or how am I saved? And that's the question that I want to look at in the context of this parable. And so as we do that, as we look at it, answering that question, I wanna go back also to Tammy's question, well, who am I in this story? And I'd like to walk through the story and just see who in the story matches up with uh, each one of us first person in the story I want to talk about is the robbers. So this one seems easy. 
the robbers, they steal, they murder. And I think to myself, that is not me. Um, I suppose if you were to define stealing as, you know, walking into a store and sticking something under your jacket and then leaving without paying for it. If you want to define stealing that way, then I am a thief. Um, but that's where it stops. I'm not a murderer. Uh, unless I remember what Jesus said about the attitude to the heart uh, and how anger itself is murder. And then I realized not only am I a murderer, I'm a serial killer. So I have to check that first box. Yes, in this story, I would see myself as the robbers. Next character in the story would be the priest. And here, this one seems easy because I am certainly not a priest or a pastor. I have no role in any church uh, or any similar organization. So I feel like I can escape this one. But in essence, what the priest is, the way we I think should see him is, he's a man who has the resources to make a change. He has the understanding, certainly through his education and his religious upbringing, he cannot plead ignorance. Um, and what he's withholding in care, he's just simply doing out of self-concern. It's not that it's too hard, it's just that it's not worth it. For him, it's to help this man would just be aggravation. He would have to do the ritual cleanings and for seven days his friends would make fun of him and he, he just says, that's nothing that I wanna bother with. So helping this guy, for that priest makes about as much sense as inviting people to a banquet that cannot repay you by inviting you to their own. So in that sense, I would ask myself, well, have I ever been guilty of seeing somebody in need, having the resources to meet that need, knowing that I should meet that need, and then choosing not to do it? And when I frame it that way, I would have to give myself a check. Uh, not only a check, but a check probably every day. I think every day, the list of things that I could do and that I know that I should do, but then I do not do, uh, gets longer and longer. So I think the priest has um, a lot of company. Next person I would look at is the Levite. Now, surely I'm not the Levite. I'm not even sure what a Levite is. What is a Levite? Um, apparently, it's a guy who thinks a lot about what the priests think of him. Uh, so he is tempted to follow his lead, the priest's lead, over his own conscience in these matters. So this is like when you watch your boss or you watch anybody that you want to impress, people that you care very much what they think of you, and you, you sort of modulate your reactions and your actions based on what they're going to think and, and what they're already doing. So maybe you laugh at a joke that you normally wouldn't laugh at, or maybe you engage in some behavior you normally wouldn't do, uh, or maybe you refrain from doing something that you normally would. Uh, so if you've ever been in that position, and I have, where I've held back from doing what I knew was the right thing to do, and it wasn't because I lacked the resources, it was because I simply cared about what other people might think if I did it. It might feel a little bit embarrassing or a little bit intimidating, and so I just didn't do it well, then I do meet the profile of the Levite. So that is um, a third check, kind of a strike three. So as we move through the parable, we finally come to the man who was actually attacked. Now here, we're looking at a man who is helpless, lifeless, unable to respond and in desperate need. Now, after what I just confessed about the uh, robbers and the priest and the Levite, it would be hard for me to say that I'm not that man. Uh, that is a, an absolute check. And that sounds to me a lot like the Israelites that Tammy mentioned in her story. 
that do not have a lot to do with the action um, they're being acted upon. But really, there's more evidence that Jesus has this man in mind as who we should identify with than, than just simply that. Um, one is that when he introduces the story, he says, there was a man. And so when he does that, he's inviting you in to put yourself in the perspective of the character he's introduced at the center of the story. So when he says there was a man, you think to yourself, okay, that's me. So there's a double check that we're the man. And not only that, but he, when he says the man, he doesn't tell us the man's name or his occupation. We don't even know where he's from. We're not even frankly sure that he's Jewish. He's, he's just a person. And that helps us to, to lose any barrier we might have to identifying with him because he is universal. He's every man. Um, and then the final, to me, conviction that this man represents us is that when Jesus says to the lawyer, which of these three acted like the neighbor, Jesus is clearly implying that the lawyer is the man laying there half dead. So he's, he's putting the lawyer in the position of the dead man. So I think that's a triple check that in this story, while we share attributes with the first three, who we really should see ourselves as is that man lying there helpless. Of course, that leaves us with a, a really important character, the Good Samaritan. And so we could ask, well, I'm everybody else in this story to some degree. Am I to some degree the Good Samaritan? And I think the first thing you'd want to say is, well, yes. Yes, I am, because uh, that's who I'm trying to be. I'm listening to the parable, and I'm trying to be this person. But you notice that Jesus never says uh, to be the Good Samaritan. He says to be like the Good Samaritan, to imitate him. I think it's an acknowledgement that it's impossible to do anything more than to simply try to imitate him. If we actually were the Good Samaritan, if we had the power to be the Good Samaritan, not just to sometimes act like him, but to be him, then there would be no point in this parable. Jesus could have left the entire story at that statement that the lawyer made, love God fully and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus could have said, that's it, we're done. Now you just have to deal with that truth. But instead, Jesus tells this story about a good Samaritan. And that tells me that since Jesus is not in the habit of repeating himself for no reason, that he's got something else that he's trying to say in equating those two. So to understand how much we are not like the Good Samaritan, even though we're asked to try, I think the best thing to do is to just look at him more closely and see what attributes we see. The first thing I see is that this is a man who is considered the lowliest of the low. A Samaritan, as Tom talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, was somebody that was re rejected by the Jewish people. Uh, rejected is putting it mildly. He was despised and he was hated. That's who the Good Samaritan is. Um, what else do we know? We know that the Good Samaritan has a habit of going around and correcting the religious leaders. So what the religious leaders were supposed to do, but didn't do because they put their own selfish agenda first, this Good Samaritan goes around and does. He fixes basically what they broke. I would see that as a form, not just of care for the man, but a form of rebuke rebuke, sorry, to the religious leaders. The next thing we see is that he is a healer, right? He's bringing life to this man. Uh, I would say what he's practicing is what we call restoration. Uh, it's not charity. I mean, restoration in the sense that when you read through the parable, you're struck by how comprehensively the Good Samaritan deals with the man's need. 
where the parable says that the robbers beat him, it says that the Good Samaritan had compassion on him. Where the parable says that the man was wounded, it says that the Good Samaritan provided healing. Where the man was stripped of his clothes, the Good Samaritan provided bandages. Where the man was stolen from, the Good Samaritan repays. Where the man was abandoned and left for dead, the Good Samaritan gathers him up and brings him in. And where the man was dealt death, the Good Samaritan uh, brought life. So the way the Good Samaritan addresses every need the man has, everything the man needs done, and then sticks with it over time. It's, it looks like from the parable, it's over weeks uh, that he's committed to this. This is not charity work the way we normally understand it. This is not charity from 10,000 feet where you sort of write a check or drop off a, a bag of supplies to a home, which is wonderful. But this is something different. Um, this is restoration. And this is what restoration looks like. It's holistic and it's committed in a way that's sacrificial. Speaking of sacrificial, that's the next quality this man shows, uh, the Good Samaritan. He shows sacrificial love. And by that, I mean that it's nothing that he expects to get something in return. He is risking his life because, of course, if you take the parable seriously, these robbers could come back. And the Good Samaritan is going to sit there and help this man bandage him up perhaps for an hour or two in the very place where the crime happened. That is not something I would typically do myself. Um, he's also willing to completely empty himself. He does that by giving away not just his safety and his time, but he gave away his animal. He gave away his supplies. He gave away his money. He basically empties himself of everything of value so that he could save this one man. And it's not just any man. It's a man who is incapable of reciprocating that love that's given to him. Who is it that would pour out such costly love on someone who could not acknowledge it or repay it um, or in any way, or actually I would say it was even insensible to the sacrifice that's being made. So the good Samaritan is definitely setting an example that is to be imitated. That's another quality he has. Jesus said to the lawyer, if you do what the good Samaritan does, you will earn eternal life. That's what Jesus is implying. So this is, this is a big deal that he's describing behavior that earns eternal life. Um, but as we said, what's being depicted here is also, frankly, impossible. I mean, we might have a moment or two where we come close, but it's nothing like the way we live our lives. So the Good Samaritan is fulfilling an impossible standard completely and perfectly. And he's being impossibly good. And he's actually earning eternal life by his behavior. And so you have to ask yourself, who is it? Who do we know who can, be impossible, who can fulfill that impossible standard and who earns eternal life? When you frame it that way, clearly we are not the Good Samaritan. Uh, he is somebody that we can imitate. But who we are, the robber, the priest, the Levite, yes. The man lying there, senseless, most certainly. The Good Samaritan, well, clearly that's Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the hero of this story, just like in the story of David and Goliath, where David represents the actions of Jesus against the evil one. Um, this is Jesus telling his story. And I think this is why he's telling this story to the lawyer. The truth that he's communicating 
is something that goes beyond that restatement of the law, that if you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you'll earn salvation. He wants to tell him something more than that. And so in answer to the lawyer's question, what must I do to be saved? Jesus is giving an answer. I mean, on one superficial level, what he's saying is just fulfill the law perfectly and, you, and you'll do that. But when he tells the parable, he's answering that question, what must I do to be saved on a whole other and deeper level? He's saying, you're going to have to let me do it. So he's saying the answer, what must I do to be saved, is actually nothing. You just have to receive. Now, while we can do nothing to be saved, that doesn't mean that our story or even this parable is over. There's more that Jesus wants to tell us. So in the story, if we put ourselves in that man's shoes, we have been unresponsive. We have been left for dead. We have been helpless when the good Samaritan stepped in and saved us. He awakened us and he told us to stop acting like robbers, thieves, priests, Levites. And instead, he called us to a very different mission. And that mission brings us to the last person in the story. And that's the innkeeper. So who does the innkeeper represent in the parable? Well, that's a good question. Let's look at uh, the innkeeper the same, way, the same way that we did the Good Samaritan and see what we can find. First, this innkeeper receives broken and wounded people brought in by the Good Samaritan. The innkeeper is equipped by the Good Samaritan to provide care and healing. And he's equipped literally because remember in the story, the Good Samaritan provides the money to the innkeeper in advance. The innkeeper also acts on behalf of the Good Samaritan himself. Uh, the innkeeper, in a sense, becomes the hands and feet of the Good Samaritan. He cares for the man just as the Good Samaritan cared for the man. He's asked to do the same. And finally, the innkeeper shows extreme generosity. And he does this because he's been promised full repayment. There's no need for him to be stingy with his care or his restoration or his forgiveness of any debt because he's been told everything will be repaid. And yes, when will he be repaid? Well, the Good Samaritan said he will do it upon his return. And that is the final connection I think that Jesus is making between himself and the Good Samaritan. This is a man who says he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to settle up. And that's exactly, I think, what Jesus is trying to tell us. So if we think of ourselves and ask, who's the innkeeper? I think the answer is obvious. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It's us. It's Green Tree. This is who we are. This is who we're supposed to be. We are a group of people who were dead, who have been rescued by the Good Samaritan. And now we've been given a much bigger mission. We've been told to imitate him. Now, as the innkeepers, we might ask ourselves, well, who are we supposed to receive? The answer is every single person that the Good Samaritan brings to our door. And that doesn't matter if they're rich or poor or if they're black or white or Asian or Western European or any color or nationality under the sun. It doesn't matter if they're young or old or if they're conservative or if they're liberal or like me, just very confused. Um, everybody should be welcome. The sign above our inn needs to say welcome to everybody that the Good Samaritan brings to our door. That's really, to me, a personal challenge. Um, I think to myself, 
if we're going to behave that way as a church, we need to behave that way as individuals too. Because if we're not doing that in our homes, then we're not going to do it here. I think another thing that we have to remember when we think about the story this way is that the invitation that I'm describing for care and restoration and healing is not limited to visitors, attenders, and members. This is an invitation. This is a gift that Jesus is giving through us also to pastors, to elders, and to staff. Uh, Green Tree is their church too. This is not just a place they work. This is a place where every one of those volunteers, staff people, elders, should receive care, hospitality, restoration. It's such a strange concept to even think that we would perhaps withhold that grace and care to someone because they have devoted their vocation to serving this church. So the challenge for all of us then is to extend that grace to our elders, our pastors, the staff, even as at the same time, as members, we hold them accountable in their roles. I think the only way it's possible to do that well is to be closely involved. Uh, this is not something you can be far away in the mission of the church. And voting on a resolution is the least of what we're called to do as a church. Each of us needs to be actively engaged in the business of this inn. Uh, and if we do that, I think then our words and our opinions, whether those words and opinions are about encouragement or about correction, whether they are about praise or criticism, if we're actively engaged, then I think those words will be more than just voiced, they'll actually be heard. And I think that makes a healthy church. So I think that means we have to drop the mentality, uh, each one of us, that we are just guests at the end. I know I'm guilty of this sometimes. I, I think of it like I paid the bill and now I expect service. Um, now, sometimes any of us can be in a season of our life where that's exactly what we need and that's all we can do is, is be served. And if that's true for you, then we're all very glad that you're here and we want you to know that the inn is open. But in a healthy church, when its members are healthy, they're working as uh, both the guests and workers at the inn. They're being restored and they're restoring at the same time. So don't be so quick to delete that next email asking for volunteer help. That could be your opportunity to become a bigger part of this mission. And if you don't know any one of the staff, well, then find them. There's thousand, a thousand of us, and there's only about a dozen of them. So it's our job to find them, not just for them to find us. And if you don't know an elder and you feel very distant from them, then respond to that next invitation to be a part of an elder group. And if you've thrown that invitation away and, or, you, or you haven't found one lately, then call the church and just say, I don't know who these elders are. Please put me in contact with the closest one. And they will do that. And then finally, I would just like to encourage all of us, uh, myself especially, not to hibernate during this season of COVID. I think it's so tempting uh, because we don't know how long this is going to last. But because we don't know how long this is going to last, um, we have to be vigilant. Never in history has a church's response to a plague been to fall asleep. And we can't do that now. The staff, the pastors, the elders, and the congregants as well. Everybody needs to be busy about the work of this inn so that we're running strong and healthy now and we're ready for when things change and we're able to get physically back together again and we hit the ground 
running. And in all of this, I would just offer the encouragement to remember that if the cost ever feels very high and the effort feels a little overwhelming and unending, that it's okay because the Good Samaritan has promised to repay us in full whatever it is that we lack when he returns. Let's pray. Jesus, our Good Samaritan, we thank you for um, reviving us from the dead, for giving us new life and mission. Help us to extend uh, that same kind of compassion to each other that you've shown to us. Give us the tools, the wisdom, the energy, and the faith to carry out the work that you've given us. Help us to not be discouraged during this time, but to be encouraged uh, by the power that you give us to overcome every obstacle, every obstacle that is in the way of your will. Amen.